I really hoped and prayed that this would not be here on Sunday morning. Um, I wish I could tell you that it got there because I was so fervently praying for this church this past week with my head to the ground, but that's not how it got there. Um, I can also encourage you and let you know that it's not there from Olivia swinging a frying pan or anything else. Uh, but I do have to own up to what happened. As soon as I tell you the story, I hope that you can all ignore my bruise and we can get back to preaching and we can move on. But here's the story. Thursday night, I was playing with Javen, playing with Nolan, uh, trying to goof off, just having fun, trying to make him laugh. And I see a toy that Nolan has that has a suction cup on it. So I grabbed this toy and it has this thing protruding from it. And I thought, you know, I'll look like a unicorn, make Javen laugh, have some fun with him. So I stuck it on my forehead uh, only a few minutes later to realize that this is a lot harder to get off than I thought it was going to be. And so I yanked it off. Olivia said, you really need to go look in the mirror. And I didn't believe her. And she said, like 15 minutes later, no, you really need to go look in the mirror. And that's how that got there. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Elephants out of the room now. You all know why it's there. Now we can move on. So giggle, laugh, do whatever you got to do. Let's move on. So with that, welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. And as we talk about that this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, we're going to talk about one word. And that one word is unity. Now, if you read your Bible much, you know that unity is a pretty consistent theme throughout the pages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, there was this emphasis on God's people being unified in their relationship to one another, but also unified in their worship of him, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In the New Testament, there are multiple passages that talk about the importance of unity within the church of God. And we'll be talking about one of those this morning. But even if you aren't a Christian, even if you don't really read the Bible a whole lot, I think most of us would agree that unity is a pretty good thing. Most people across the board think that unity is overall a good idea. We hear sayings like, you know, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just learn to love one another? Maybe you're a fan of the song. Imagine with the world living as one. We all like unity. It's a good idea. And there have been multiple examples throughout history of incredible movements of unity. In World War I, the 1914 Christmas ceasefire consisted of German and British soldiers leaving their opposing trenches to share stories, share cigarettes, sing Christmas carols together, and play games of soccer. Incredible picture of unity right there on the front lines of this bloody war. In the Revolutionary War, citizens of the American colonies who had a lot of different interests and a lot of different personalities and ideas of what America should be gathered together to fight the oppression they believed the British Empire was subjecting them to. In the wake of September 11th, Americans of all kinds of different political stances gathered together and stood as one in the face of national tragedy. In 2010, the Arab Spring saw hundreds of thousands, if not more, citizens in the Middle East gather together to overthrow oppressive governments or dictators in multiple countries all across the Middle East. 
in the world of sports, you may have seen this picture recently. There should be a picture behind me. This is Devin Gardner of the University of Michigan and JT Barrett of Ohio State University. I know we have fans of both schools here, but historically, these are two schools and two fan bases that absolutely cannot stand one another. Arguably one of the most bitter rivalries in all of sports, college or professional. But here we see Devin Gardner kneeling down next to JT Barrett when he hurt his ankle to console him and to encourage him. An incredible picture of unity and camaraderie, despite their differences. Now, as great as all of these examples of unity are, as inspiring as they might be, they all have one thing in common. And unfortunately, it's not a good thing. The one thing they have in common is that these showings of unity don't last. In World War I, after that Christmas ceasefire of 1914, there were no more Christmas ceasefires through the remainder of the war. The fighting got more bitter. More blood was shed. The introduction of chemical warfare happened, which made things even more tense. There was no more unity after 1914. With the Revolutionary War, it was great. An incredible accomplishment happened, gaining America's independence. But less than 100 years later, we see the Civil War, where citizens of the United States are killing one another, even though less than 100 years later, they had locked arms together. With September 11th, eventually that brutal political partisanship that we've grown all too used to returned and division took back over. In the Arab Spring, many of those countries where people united to overthrow dictators or governments, they're just as divided and hostile now, if not more, than they were before. And in the world of sports, even with beautiful pictures like this, there may be camaraderie for a while, but eventually rivalries return. Fan bases go back to not being able to stand one another. All too often, people rally together for support. They rally together in unity in the face of tragedy or hardship. They come together to accomplish a huge goal or a worthy cause. And when these groups come together, when people are united, they accomplish things that they could never accomplish on their own. And then they step back and they say, you know, we're capable of so much when we work together. Why did we ever let ourselves get so divided in the first place? Let's never let that happen again. But then we know all too often the division returns. The unity fades away. Time passes on. Now, last week we talked about how the gospel not only reconciles us to God, but the gospel reconciles us to one another. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that God is creating one new man from the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul says that the old divisions, the old grudges, the old rivalries that used to exist, that used to separate these people, they have no place in the church of God amongst fellow believers in Jesus. Paul says that these people are family members in God's household. He says that they're a temple being built together for the glory of God. He says they're fellow citizens Of the city that God is building. But an important question is why is God so concerned with unity amongst believers? 
Why can't these people simply learn to tolerate one another, keep their distance in this life, and then maybe upon their death or upon Christ's return, whichever one comes first, maybe then we can actually be united. But for now, let's keep those people who are different from us at arm's length. Why is God so concerned with unity for his people at this very moment? What's the purpose of this unity? What's the goal? And is this unity even sustainable? How do we know that our unity as believers won't just fade away like all those other movements of unity throughout the pages of history? For that, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 837. And if you don't own a Bible, as always, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we read Ephesians 3... Let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father, we're grateful that we have the privilege of coming into your presence, that we have the great, the privilege of reading your word, of being together as brothers and sisters in Christ, in spite of our differences. And God, I pray that you would convict us and challenge us and encourage us, whatever it is that might be needed. Some of us are here and are suffering. Some of us are here and are filled with joy God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us as you see fit through your word. God, I pray that unity would mark our church, that as people see us, they would see something about who you are because of the reconciliation that occurs here. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for this time. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So in verses 1 through 5, Paul reasserts what he's already talked about, that God has specifically called him to minister to the Gentiles. This is his mission. This is what he lives for. This is God's plan for him, to minister to non-Jewish people. And Paul says that's the whole reason that he's sitting in prison. Remember, he's writing this letter from prison. Now, some people would look at this and think, okay, well, Paul said he had a mission. He said he had a goal. He was going to minister to the Gentiles. But then he ended up in prison. Eh, Sounds like he fell pretty short of that goal. Sounds like his mission was a failure if he's sitting in a prison cell. But Paul doesn't look look at it like that at all. Paul views it as an honor. He views it as a privilege to be sitting in a jail cell for the sake of God's mission in his life. Paul views his suffering as an honor and a privilege to be serving God in the way that God has called him to serve. But then as he picks up, he talks about a mystery. Interesting word to use in this passage. When we hear the word mystery, sometimes we think of Scooby-Doo or we think of Sherlock Holmes Or if you're old, you think of murder, she wrote. 
But either way, when we hear about a mystery, we don't often think about what Paul's talking about. When we hear mystery, we think of some problem that has to be solved. We think of some riddle that we have to find the answer to and find the solution to. But that's really not what Paul is talking about at all. When Paul is talking about this mystery, he doesn't have to solve anything. He doesn't have to find the answer. He doesn't have to find the clues. God has revealed this answer to him. God has given him the answer to this mystery, even though many before him didn't know the answer. Now, if you're one of the Ephesian believers, you might be thinking, well, this is kind of exciting. The letter has been a little bit boring so far, but we've been listening to it and we're waiting for something good to happen. Now, Paul's talking about a mystery. He has some new information, some incredible revolutionary knowledge that maybe we're the first ones to hear it. Okay, Paul, tell us what the mystery is. Share the secret with us. We'll look at what Paul says in verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, haven't we already talked about that? Paul says that the mystery is that Gentiles, like Jews, can be children of God through who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Gentiles can be children of God because God sent Jesus, his son, Fully God and fully man, born in the flesh of a virgin. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He was crucified for our sins, willingly giving up his life on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He appeared to multiple witnesses. He ascended to be with God, where he reigns in glory at this very moment. And we anxiously await the time when he will return and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But again, we've heard that. Paul's already talked about that in Ephesians. Look at what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He says something similar about a mystery in that passage. He says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So again, we see the mystery reasserted that Gentiles, just like Jews, can be children of God, that the separation has been removed. Now, before you say that's it, really, that's not that exciting. That's not that new and revolutionary. He's already talked about that in the previous chapters. A few words of encouragement before you look over this. Number one, if Paul harps on this so much. It's safe to say that he thinks it's pretty important. He is drilling this truth into the Ephesian believers' heads. And he just might want to drill it into our heads, too. Another thing to remember, don't forget just how deep the differences were between these two groups of people. Imagine you have a coworker or a neighbor, and you just do not get along with that person. Under any circumstances, any time you get together, the chemistry just isn't there. You constantly butt heads and you really don't like being around that person. That's one kind of division. But Paul's talking about something that's a little bit bigger than that. Imagine that same 
coworker or that same neighbor, imagine that you don't just disagree with them on opinions. You don't just see things from a different perspective. You don't just butt heads from time to time. You look at that person and you say, you know, I really believe through the scriptures that God has given me that this person is inferior in God's eyes to me. That's a pretty deep disagreement. That's a lot different than different personalities or different senses of humor or some small kind of argument in the past. This is the kind of division that Paul is talking about. And when you look at it that way, you can understand a little bit more why Paul would want to hit on it over and over again. And thing to remember, number three, don't just forget how deep the reconciliation that Paul is talking about really is. Paul is not talking about these people learning to tolerate one another. He's not talking about them not saying anything at all if they don't have something nice to say. He's not talking about them just barely learning to worship in the same space without wanting to rip each other's faces off. He's talking about reconciliation that is a lot deeper than that. He's talking about true godly love, true godly service, true godly submission by each of these groups of people to one another. When you consider how often Paul talks about it, when you consider just how deep the differences were and conversely, just how deep this reconciliation is, you can understand why Paul would repeat himself quite a bit in the book of Ephesians. Let's pick up in verse seven. Of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says there. Of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Which was given me by the working of his power. To me though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul considers it an act of God's grace. That he has this mission. He considers it an act of God's grace that he has the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to those who are far off from God. That's why Paul is okay sitting in prison because of this mission. That's why Paul is content with suffering for this mission. Because he believes it truly is an act of God's grace that he even gets the opportunity to do what God has called him to do. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. We just talked about verse 27. Now look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul toils for this truth. He suffers for this truth. He expends every single ounce of his God-given energy. For this mission that God has called him to, to make the gospel known throughout the whole world, to make sure that everyone knows who Jesus is, to make sure that everyone knows what Jesus has done, to make sure that everyone knows that the gospel reconciles people to God, but it also reconciles people to one another. This is a big deal for Paul. He hits on it over and over again. But then we see where Paul's going with this in verses 9 and 10. Maybe the hinge of the entire chapter. Verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul doesn't just say you're both saved, so stop complaining. He doesn't just say you're both saved, so get used to one another. You're both saved, so you might as well deal with one another politely, even if you secretly can't stand these other people. Paul makes it clear that the reason why unity matters so much to him, the reason why unity matters so much to God is because God is going to use the church to change the world. Paul says it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to anyone and everyone. The whole idea is that our reconciliation to one another and our reconciliation to God makes the gospel visible to those who do not believe. The idea is that when people look at us, all of our differences, all of our old divisions, all of our old grudges, all of our disagreements, when people look at us and see us loving one another and see us serving one another, and forgiving one another, and encouraging one another, and rebuking one another, when people see that, they might say to themselves, wow, maybe there really is something to this gospel they always talk about. Maybe there really is something to this Jesus they follow. Maybe there really is something to this Bible they read. Because the only thing that could possibly bring all of those people together is an act of God. Our reconciliation to one another makes the gospel visible to the world. The church makes the gospel visible to the world. And who does the church consist of? It consists of me. And it consists of all of you. Our reconciliation says something to the world about the legitimacy of the Savior that we follow. Remember what we talked about last week, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our reconciliation, our forgiveness, our love, our relationship with one another, that tells the world who we follow. That tells the world a little bit about the gospel. Because we add legitimacy to the gospel. Can you imagine preaching the gospel to someone and saying, yeah, the gospel reconciles me to God, but it also reconciles me to my fellow believers. And you should come and you should join us. You should worship with us. And then the person gets here and they find nothing but arguing. They find nothing but strife. They find nothing but division. That person might say, really? You said the gospel reconciles fellow believers, but I don't see a whole lot of reconciliation here. This is why the church matters. This is why our unity matters. Because the church is God's primary tool to change the world. 
When we consider this, now we know why Paul cares so much about unity in the church. Now we know why Paul has such little patience for division within the church. And now we know why Paul has such incredibly high standards for leadership in the church. Now we know why Paul can say things like he says in 1 Corinthians 5. He talks about public, unrepentant sin within believers of the church. And Paul says, if you have this public, unrepented, unabashed sin, cut it out. Remove it. Do it in hopes and do it in prayer that this person would repent of their sin, that this person would be reconciled to their fellow believers, that this person would be restored to membership in the family of God. But Paul does not take sin in the church lightly because God uses the church to make the gospel visible. Now we know why Paul can say something in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where a divisive man should be warned, but if he continues to not heed the warning, have nothing to do with him. That sounds intense. That sounds harsh. That sounds rude to our Midwestern Christian, don't rock the boat sensibilities. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. Because for Paul, the church is not just a hobby. The church is not just a social club. It is God's primary tool to make the gospel visible to the world. The church is the bride of Christ. Therefore, her integrity matters. Her vitality matters. Her health matters. Now we know why Paul obsesses over the health of the church in all of his writings. Let's pick up in verse 11. Of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says there, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul says, This is worth suffering for. Don't lose heart over my suffering. Don't lose heart in the midst of your suffering, which inevitably will come if you're devoted to the gospel. But it's okay, because even in the midst of your suffering, you have access to God through what Christ has done. He is your mediator. You can approach God with boldness because you have been forgiven, because you have been saved by grace through faith. Let's pick up in verse 14. Paul begins praying. It's so common in Paul's writings. Whenever he says a big, weighty, incredible passage, he jumps into prayer right after. And that's what he does here. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As Paul considers this, all he can think to do is pray. He prays for the church's strength. He prays that the church would love one another and know the fullness of Christ's love. I pray that 
just like Paul, you would be praying for this church because we need prayer. If we're going to make the gospel visible to the world, it's not going to be through our own hard work. It's not going to be by us picking up ourselves by the bootstraps. It's going to be through a movement of God. It's going to be through revival that God brings about. It's going to be through the prayers of his people fervently being lifted up to him. That we might have the privilege, that we might have the honor of being used by God to make the gospel visible. I hope that you are praying for this church because we genuinely need your prayers. Now, some of us may hear this, that God uses the church to make the gospel visible and we're raring to go. We're ready to get out there, we're ready to be the church, get moving, do something, change the world. Let's just stop sitting here. Let's go out and do ministry. But then some of us may hear this and think, man, this is a whole lot of pressure on us. This is a heavy weight on our shoulders. This is a huge responsibility. This is a high calling. And if you feel that way about this privilege that we have as the church, you're right. It is a lot of pressure. It is a heavy weight. It is a huge responsibility. It is a high calling. But the good news is that it's not all up to us. It's not dependent upon us being perfect. It's not dependent upon us having it all together. It's not dependent upon us putting forth the best image that we possibly can to the world. It's up to God. Closing out the passage, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. How in the world are sinful, messed up people like us going to make the gospel visible to the world? Who do we think we are that our reputation would say anything positive about what God has done through Jesus? Well, we can be confident that we are up to the task, not because we are such a perfect tool in the hands of God, not because we don't have scars, not because we don't have nicks, not because we don't have defects. We're up to this task because of the hands of him who holds us. We're up to this task because God is using us. He is the ultimate craftsman, even if we are an imperfect tool in his hands. We serve a God who is more powerful than we can fathom, who is capable to do so much more than we could even think to ask. And he's at work within us. He's at work within the church at large. He is at work within this very church here on this corner. This is how we can be confident that our unity won't just fade away like all the other movements throughout history. This is how we can be confident that our cause won't fail like so many other movements of unity throughout history. The church can represent the gospel in the world. 
The church's reputation, the church's witness can bring glory to God and can bring legitimacy to the gospel. Not because the church has it all together, but because God is using it in spite of its weaknesses. God is using you in spite of your weaknesses. And our reconciliation to one another, our unity matters because God uses the church to change the world. And the church is in his hands. Let's pray. Father, it's humbling to think that of all the things and all the people and all the tactics that you could use to make your glory known to the world, you've chosen to use us. You've chosen to use people who have scars, who have issues, have sins that we still wrestle with day in and day out. But God, we can be confident that you will use us. Not because we're so great, but because we're in the hands of a God who we can't even fully fathom. God, I pray that you would use us as individuals to change the world. I pray that you would use us as a church to change the world around us, to make the gospel known. I pray that our willingness to forgive, our willingness to love, our willingness to serve would say something about the gospel that we believe in. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would make us fleet of foot as we go out into our neighborhoods, as we go to our workplaces, as we go to our schools, as people who have been reconciled to you. I pray that we'll preach the gospel with boldness, not just with our words, but with our actions. And God, I pray that we would not fool ourselves into thinking that it's all up to us. That we would not fool ourselves into thinking that we are sufficient for this task on our own because we are not. But God, we're in your hands and it's your power that's working within us. And I pray that that would lead to fruit in this community. God, we love you. We praise you. Help us to be one, united under the name of your son, Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.